So we'll see if this again. And, uh, I don't know if any of you are getting the vaccine, but whatever, I uh, hope uh, you, you'll, you'll get whatever whatever you need. The vaccine, the vaccine is available. Okay. None of us are what? Eligible. Eligible, yeah. It's not open time. Okay. All righty. All right, so uh, we'll, we'll see. Okay, so uh, today we're starting a new topic. We've been, we're still doing med- medical ethics, but today we're going to talk about uh, some of the ethical and halachic problems in reproduction. Uh, this is a very, very interesting area because in recent years, in the, maybe, maybe recent decades, over the past uh, 25, 30 uh, years, there have been many, many new creative ways of having children, and uh, Mamela, it's automatically going to be the case that when technology develops new ways of facilitating something, there will often be halachic issues and various ethical issues that, that come around. So this is the whole area that often goes by the acronym ART. ART. ARTS can stand for Assisted Reproductive Technology. Right? So they use the word ART, which is actually a very good term because what that stands for? Assisted Reproductive Technologies. Assisted reproduction, yeah. like surrogate motherhood, in vitro fertilization. Assisted reproduction, that's what this whole area is, is called. So first, let's start off with a very, very basic idea that the first mitzvah in the Torah is a mitzvah of pruervu, to have uh, children. There's a mitzvah on a Jew, it's not a commandment to non-Jews, to have children, be fruitful and multiply. So the first strange thing that you need to point out is, according to the halacha, this mitzvah only applies to uh, men, it does not apply to women. Men have a halachic obligation to have children, which means, in other words, a man is halachically obligated to find a wife with whom uh, he can try to have children. Women technically do not have the mitzvah. I mean, they're the ones who have the children, right? But they don't have the mitzvah Great. to so have the children. The mitzvah for months of pregnancy. Well, well, obviously, the woman gets the mitzvah for either both assisting the man and and for the suffering that she's gone through. But the chiyuv, the obligation, is on the man. Which means, actually, that actually means that if a man were to decide he wants to be single, uh, the man would be committing a sin. If a woman would decide she wants to be single, she would not be sinning because she has no obligation to have children. Or lesbian, right? Yeah. Uh, well, well, no, no, no. Well, okay, you're, you're bringing in a lot of other things. I mean, uh, a woman doesn't have to have children, so if a woman wants to be single, she can be single. Now, if you're asking me, can a woman be a lesbian, uh, that's a much more complicated question. That has nothing to do with having children or not having children. That's a separate issue, whether uh, lesbian sexual relationships are forbidden. So here, since you asked the question, I'll talk about it just for a few minutes. It's not the main topic. Uh, there is indeed a difference, you are correct, between male homosexuality and female homosexuality. Uh, male homosexuality, actually I shouldn't even say homosexuality because the, it, the Torah does not answer the desire. But the Torah does prohibit male homosexual acts. Now, what is a homosexual act is, is not the simplest thing to define, but generally would have to, define, would have to be involved some area of uh, genitalia, meaning if a man is hugging a man, even if it's done in a sexual way, that's not uh, a homosexual acts. Homosexual acts have to be sexual 
uh, in, in nature. And the Torah actually says that if two men uh, commit a homosexual, sexual behavior, they're chayiv misa. That means in the time of the temple, if there were witnesses, etc., they could be put to death for that. Although, as you know, as a general rule, the capital punishments of the Torah were very rarely given because the evidence was so difficult and the like. You needed eyewitnesses and warnings and the like. Now, female lesbianism uh, is not of the same magnitude of prohibition, meaning to say it is not a capital crime. Uh, nevertheless, it is treated as something that is forbidden, uh, as a lesser avera. Uh, it is treated as what is called masa eretz mitzrayim, right? the Torah prohibits behaving like the ancient Egyptian decadent cultures. So to simply give a green light to lesbian behavior, uh, we cannot do that. It is, it is forbidden, but it is not as severe as uh, male homosexuality, 100% correct. Uh, and uh, in fact, there are a lot of things. I, I don't want to get too ex explicit. It's a little uncomfortable. But for example, well, okay, I mean, it's Torah, so I'll, I'll be open about it. Uh, masturbation, which is not lesbianism, that's just self-stimulation. So if in the case of a male, that would be forbidden generally because of the wasting of sperm. In the case of a female, technic technically, uh, it is not forbidden, technically. Is it proper? Does it take away from marriage? Yeah, there are all sorts of problems, but, but technically it is not prohibited. But that is not the same as lesbianism. Lesbianism is a separate issue where you're interacting with another woman in a certain way. Okay, so that's, that's the general idea, but, but, but it is true. Bottom line, going back to the point that I began with, uh, a woman does not have a chiyof. Chiyof means an obligation to have children. A man does have a chiyof to find a wife who is willing to have children. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that women don't have the mitzvah? After all, the words pru or vu are plural. Adam and Eve are both being addressed. So Chazal have a very interesting drasha. Because in the Pasuk pru or vu, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth shuha and conquer it. The word, no, note that procreation is defined as a type of conquest. Kind of you conquer the earth by procreating. So Chazal have an interpretation that it is, the it is the manner of a man, the way of a man to conquer. It's like a military activity. Women are generally not involved in conquest. And therefore, if procreation equals conquest, women are halakhically exempt from procreation. Now, that's the derivation. Is there a logic? What's the logic of it? Like, why, why should a woman not have the same mitzvah as a man? So I'll give you uh, three reasons. Uh, one reason is, interestingly enough, that women generally have a stronger maternal instinct. Again, these are generalizations. I'm not saying it will be true in 100% of the cases. But women have a stronger maternal instinct than men. Uh, maybe because of a biological clock, maybe just generally a mother has a stronger attachment. So as a result, even without a mitzvah, a woman will generally yearn to have children. Some men might be less inclined, so the Torah has to push them and say, you have an obligation. That, that's one possibility. There's another possibility that actually says the opposite. You know that pregnancy and certainly childbirth are potentially life-threatening conditions. Right? Women die in childbirth. 
and not only in like third world countries, but you know even in uh, advanced countries, uh, there is a percentage. It's Baruch Hashem small. It is small, but there is a percentage. It's not totally negligible of women who die in childbirth. And of course, we just read back in the Torah that uh, Binyamin, of course, the last of the tribes, was born when Rachel Imenu died in childbirth. So here is the thing. The Tyra cannot command a woman to put her life in danger. The Torah can command a man, find a woman who likes to take risks. <laughs> in other words, find a woman who wants to do this and marry her. But the Torah is not going to tell a woman, you got to put your life in danger. Now, again, this is not the same as Roe versus Wade. This is not saying uh, a woman can decide to abort or whatever it is. But a woman can decide before she's married that she doesn't want to get pregnant because it's a sakana. And the Torah is not going to be mechayev. It's not going to obligate a person to put themselves in sakana. That's why the mitzvah is on the man rather than the woman. That's the second reason. There is a third reason that's a little more complicated. And that is based on a... A, a halacha, which is a little anomalous, but it's a well-known halacha. Under Torah law, a man can have more than one wife. You know that, right? Under Torah law, a man is allowed to have more than one wife, just as the Avos, Yaakov had, had, had uh, two wives, maybe four wives, depending on how you count, Bila and Zilpah. Uh, and in fact, even in the Talmud, even in the time of the Talmud, male polygamy was permitted, although it never seemed to be very common, uh, when did it become prohibited uh, for uh, Jewish men to have more than one wife? This is Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom was a great, great uh, rabbi. He was the Rebbe of Rashi's Rebbe, so a generation before Rashi. Uh, and he was in Germany, and he made a ban, not just he, but he and his basin made a ban uh, that men cannot uh, take more than one a wife. And although originally this ban was only made until the year 5000, so it would have expired, it was renewed. Now, keep in mind, Rabbeinu Gershom was the head of the Jewish communities in Germany, Poland, what we call Ashkenazic Jews. Uh, he did not have jurisdiction or authority over Svardim in North Africa, Syria, Morocco, those countries. So as a result, Rabbeinu Gershom's ban against polygamy did not apply to Sephardim. It only applied to Ashkenazim. And therefore, under halacha, not, not secular, but under halacha to this very day, a Sephardi, is, Sephardi man is permitted to have more than one wife. Now, it is against the law, certainly both in the United States, really every country, and in Israel too. In other words, if a Sephardi were to try to marry more than one wife, he could get arrested and go to jail, but as a matter of halacha, it is, it is permitted. But uh, uh, this is all after Rabbeinu Gershom. The difference in Ashkenazim and Sephardim is only after Rabbeinu Gershom's Takana. But before Rabbeinu Gershom's Takana, everybody, all men, could marry more than one wife. On the other hand, a woman was never permitted to have more than one husband. I think that's called polyandry. Uh, huh? I really can't. You really can. I know, I know, I know. I really uh, hate it so much. Well, I tell you, uh, when you get married, you'll see that one husband is very much more than no, enough. No, no, not that I want multiple <laughs> yeah. husbands, but that men, but the men can have multiple wives. I don't, my brain, like, my brain is angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's hard for us to understand it. I, I, I agree yeah. with you. But I will tell you this, you know, there is one group 
of Christians. Yeah. That, although it's illegal, that still practice uh, yeah. multiple wives, and that's Mormons. Mormons yeah. do it. Yeah. I mean, some of the old Mormons, the modern, I mean, Mitt Romney doesn't yeah, do it. Yeah. TV shows uh, yeah, and it's interesting that if you talk to the wives, they, they tend not to resent it. They, 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 they see themselves as a team and, and they're happy. So it's interesting that it seems from our perspective it would be the worst thing in the world, but the women who are actually in it are not so unhappy. I really think it's the worst yeah. thing in the world. Okay, well, then, then don't do it, as they say. Uh, I think you know, most men wouldn't do it. No, no, again, I, I want to make it clear. There was never a time, never a time in Jewish history where it was common. Like, for Jewish men to have more than one wife. Right. This was never a common... Like, uh, right. no. no, no, absolutely. It was very, very rare, but it was halakhically allowed. Now, here is the thing that's interesting. I'm not... I'm not exp by, by the way, I want to point out one thing. You know what Sephardim do in Israel? This is very interesting. Since polygamy is permitted, but if I'm a Sephardic father of a daughter, I don't want my daughter to be a, a, a second wife. Right. They put into the ksuba an extra clause. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've heard this that says the chassan takes an oath, takes a shavua, that he will not marry another wife. And if he marries another wife, he will give the first wife like a million dollars uh, as payment. So you might actually say what Svartim do is they privatize Rabbeinu Gershom's ban. Even though they don't have Rabbeinu Gershom's ban, they make it essentially part of the ksuva uh, with a monetary penalty. So even Svartim today, do not do uh, do not do polygamy. Baba Sali had three wives. Okay, there were there were some older, you know, there were some people who did. But three wives at the same time, or he was a widower. He had two wives, and no, then the wife family always had. Um, three okay, wives. but as I say, it's very rare. Now, given that reality that men can have more than one and women can only have one, listen to this idea: if the mitzvah of pru or vu would be on a woman, if she winds up to be married to a guy without who can't have kids, she would have to demand to get. In other words, putting the mitzvah on the woman would create the need for a divorce. Masha'en came when you put the mitzvah on the man and the woman can't have children. He doesn't have to divorce her. He could just take another wife. So the Torah wanted to put the mitzvah in such a way that it would never cause the breakup of a marriage. And by putting it on the man, you're not going to break up the marriage if the woman can't have kids because he has the option of another wife. If you put it on the woman and the man can't have kids, you'd be, putting, uh, you'd be demanding that the marriage be broken up and we do not want to break up marriages. But whatever the reason, again, these are speculations, but whatever the reason, uh, it is a reality that number one, women do not have the mitzvah of pruervu. Okay, point number two. Uh, for the man's side, how many kids does a family have to have in order to fulfill the mitzvah of pruervu? So this is actually quantified. We paskin that you have to have at least one son and one daughter. So if you have ten sons, got to keep on trying. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have ten daughters, got to keep on trying. There has if to be... No, it has to be a right. It has to be in order to do the mitzvah. Of course, it's not within your control, but you're, you have not totally fulfilled the mitzvah until there is a son and a daughter. Uh, now, what if you have a son and a daughter? Is there a mitzvah to have more children? So we'll talk about contraception. There are grounds for contraception, but generally speaking, uh, halacha believes we start off with the idea. As you would probably guess 
the more the merrier. That there is a mitzvah to have as many children as you can bring into the world. Again, I, I will talk about contraception, which is a possibility, but generally speaking, as you could guess from looking at families, that we believe that every child is a blessing, every child is a mitzvah, and there's a pasuk, besides pruervu, there's a pasuk in the, in the prophet Yeshayahu that says, lo tohu bera'a. Hashem did not create the world to be desolate. La sheves yitzara, he created the world la sheves to be inhabited. Okay, but we will see that when it comes to contraception, we're much more lenient after you have the son and the daughter than we would be before. Because until you have the son and the daughter, you, the man still has the mitzvah pruervu. After he has the son and the daughter, he's done that mitzvah. But there's only the extra idea of la shevet. La shevet has certain leniencies that we don't always build into pruervu. So one of the most important questions, again, I'll talk about contraception at length a little later, but one of the most important questions in contraception or birth control is, do you already have a son and a daughter? If there's already a son and a daughter, there's a lot more leniency after that point than there would be, uh, there would be before. What about, again, before I get to the technologies, I just want to just talk about a few points about pru or vu. What about adoption? What if a couple cannot have a natural child, either because of male infertility or because of female infertility, or whatever, whatever the reason, or they don't even have a reason, they don't know, but they're not able to have a child. Uh, they want to adopt a child. Uh, does one fulfill the mitzvah of pru or vu by adopting a child. And anyway, what does the Torah say about adoption anyway? This is a good thing to talk about, just adoption generally. So there's one Maimar Chazal, there's one statement of the, in the Gemara that says the following. Anyone who raises an orphan, meaning you give a child a home who otherwise doesn't have a home, if you're Megadel, you raise Yasom or Yasoma, either a boy or a girl, in your home, Mala alav hakasuf, the Taira considers it ki'ilu yaldo as if you gave birth to them. Now, if you take it literally, that would mean, oh, if I adopt a child, it's the same as giving birth to the child. This is a Gemara, Gemara in Yavamas, in Yavmaseches Yavamas. So there was a great, great 19th-century posek in Poland. His name was Rav Shlomo Kluger. And he wrote, he was amazing, he wrote probably 300 svarim, just amazingly, amazingly prolific. And he actually poskins that adopting a child and giving a child a home is a fulfillment of the mitzvah of pruervu. However, we do not poskin that way. We poskin that pruervu does require a biological child. And in this connection, I need to talk about uh, adoption a little bit, uh, so you'll, you'll understand this. Uh, first of all, adoption per se is a legal procedure, not a halacha procedure. I mean, halacha understood raising an orphan. You took a child in and you raised him. But the idea of going to court and getting an adoption, that is not halacha, that's, that's a legal procedure. Now, the thing about this is the following. Adoption, number one, does not make a child Jewish. That's very important. If I adopt a non-Jewish child, even if it's a legal adoption, 
that child is not Jewish unless the child undergoes a conversion to be a Jew. That's step number one. Step number two is whether the child is converted or whether the child is a Jewish child that I'm adopting, he doesn't acquire my status. If I'm a Kohen, adopting a child does not make him a Kohen. And even if he converts, he doesn't become a Kohen. It's very important to know that. Number three, adoption, according to halacha, does not create a halachic relationship, meaning to say the following. Uh, if I adopt a child, I raise the child, uh, the halacha is that, uh, of course, the child will have gratitude and I will love the child. But technically, technically, he will not inherit with his brothers if there's some natural children, unless I put it in a will, meaning, the Torah says when a person dies, right, his inheritance goes to his children. Well, that would not include the adopted child unless there's a will or something like that. It is not an automatic thing. Uh, and moreover, technically speaking, an adopted child could marry his uh, sisters, marry his sibling, so to speak, within the adoptive, adoptive family. Now, I think, I'm not sure if I mentioned it or not, uh, forgive me if I'm repeating, because these classes overlap so much, the things that I said uh, two months ago to a different group of people. But, but let me just mention it, that uh, the Rebbe has an interesting Pesach Halacha, which most, most postkim actually say the same thing, about adoption and yichud. We know that men and women are not supposed to, right, if you're not married, you're not, you're not supposed to be in seclusion with a man, right, that you're not married to, and uh, it's also forbidden to hug and kiss and even hold hands. Now, there is a major exception, of course, and that is mothers and sons have no prohibition of either yichud or hugging and kissing. And sisters and daughters. And the same, well, the same thing is for fathers and daughters. Uh, brothers and sisters is actually a little more complicated, but okay. I'll, I'll right now, yeah, but, but I'll, I'll go with the lenient field. Let's assume brothers and sisters are okay. Yeah, brothers and sisters are, are a little more complicated. Uh, certainly, uh, a brother may hug and kiss a sister younger than the age of 12, that's for sure. Uh, once she's the age of 12, so the Rambam says it's not a proper thing to do, but technically it is permitted. So one, so one idea is don't do it publicly, and the other is don't do it on a regular basis. So if you see your sister once uh, a year, then it would be, be okay. Uh, so, so, so the general hetter is, that, oh, and, and yichud is mutter. Yichud is, is mutter legamri, in other words. No, I was talking about hugging. Huh? Say again? For more than 30 days. Right. I understand that, but, but yichud just yeah. uh, for a meal, that's perfectly fine. Okay? So the general idea is, again, uh, you, you know the vocabulary here. Yichud is the isser of being alone, unless the door is open or people are around. And nagia. Nagia is the prohibition of hugging, kissing, holding hands, affectionate touching. It's either called Nagia, which just means touching, or sometimes it just goes by the term Chibuk Venishuk, hugging and kissing, although it goes beyond that. So generally speaking, uh, men and women don't do that unless they're married. Exception is father to daughter, and that includes, by the way, grandfather, granddaughter, right? Father to daughter, uh, that includes mother, the son and uh, brother and sister is a little more complicated. If the sister is below 12, for sure it is okay. Above 12, uh, it is considered to be not 
proper on a regular basis, but it w would be permitted occasionally. And yichud is always permitted as long as they're not living together for more than 30 days. So even if they're going to spend the night in a hotel room, you can spend the night, you can sleep in the same bedroom uh, with your brother for up to 30 days. But I can't rent an apartment next year, let's say, like, whatever, with, a, with my brother. Well, you can't share an apartment with your brother. That's correct. That, that's correct. If it's more than 30 days, it's only a short-term short -term rental, uh, so to speak. Now, all of this is well known. Now, by the way, just as an aside, I don't mean that it's usher for a man to hug a girl at whatever age. Obviously, uh, there's a certain age where this kicks in, meaning um, I, can, you know, I can kiss a, a six-month-old baby. So when do these prohibitions, what age do these prohibitions come in? So there is a big machlokas. The strictest view, which I don't follow myself, is the prohibitions are when the girl turns three years old. That's a very strict view. Uh, the other extreme is it turns, uh, it, it kicks in when the girl pr is probably going to have a period, which is around maybe 11, uh, 12. And then there's an intermediate view, seven or eight, when certain feminine uh, features begin to develop. Again, ask your local Orthodox rabbi. If, if you want to ask me, you can ask me. But Who there are the three-year-old thing? Huh? Who follows the three-year-old thing? Uh, many Hasidim follow the three-three-three. Wow. Three. I, I don't know what Chabad yeah, is. Well, like I got, I'm, yeah. Same for boys. Same. If I was no, no. Boy. So for boys, for boys, you, you're a good woman. Towards a boy, it would kick in when he's nine years old. Okay. Okay. So for a girl, it's either three, seven, eight, or eleven, twelve. Yeah. For a boy, it would be would be nine. Okay. Uh, below that age, there's no, there are no problems, right? There are no problems, okay? Which is why, by the way, there may be issues of babysitters. If you're a 14-year-old girl and you're babysitting a 10-year-old boy, no, okay. there are some halakhic problems. Because if the boy is above nine and you are already an adult woman, you have a problem. What about a 20-year-old babysitting a 10-year-old boy? Uh, that's even worse. <laughs> that's even worse. That's right. Uh, but again, you have to work. You know, you have to work it out. Now, it, it, here is the thing. Now, now, if you're watching a boy and a girl, though, that's all right. If you're, if you're a babysitter for a brother and a sister, the sister is like the chaperone for the brother. Right. Now, this is all yichud. So now, here's the big issue. The issue is. We do have a hetra. Everything is mutter if it's mother to son and father to daughter and uh, brother and sister to some degree is mutter. How does this work in a home where a child is adopted? Adopted. In other words, uh, and there are other either adopted children or, or natural born children. So the Rebbe took the position, the Rebbe took the position that because an adopted child is not a biological child, all of the laws of yichud and chibuk v'nishuk are going to apply once the kid reaches the requisite age, of course. Exactly. Now, what that would mean is that once the boy is nine, mom cannot have yichud with the boy, or even worse, mom cannot hug and kiss the boy. And once the girl is whatever the age is, I gave, I gave you three different ages, uh, which would mean the Rebbe took the position that when, at whatever age it kicks in, and the Rebbe didn't, actually didn't take a position on that, but at whatever age these prohibitions kick in, they will apply to adopted children, and at some point, mother cannot hug or kiss 
her adopted son. Father cannot hug or kiss uh, their adopted daughter. This is the Rebbe's position, and there's also an Isra of Yichud. The logic of this was that the rule that a father and a mother don't have the prohibitions of hugging and kissing is because there will not be sexual desire that will be aroused with respect to a biological child. Uh, perhaps this might be a possibility if it's not a biological child. Now, I want to point out that the Rebbe is not unique here. The majority of halachic authorities follow that strict view, but there's a very other important view that you need to know, and that's Rabbi Voldenberg. I've mentioned him a few times, the Tzitz Eliezer. The Tzitz Eliezer says that the rule that allows hugging and kissing between parent and child and between brother and sister is not based on biology but it's based on the fact that, it, that in a normal person, I mean, they're always perverts, of course, but in a normal person, uh, there is no sexual arousal in the interaction between a parent and a child. And if that's the case, it does not depend on biology, it depends on the reality of upbringing. And therefore, a Voldemort said the following, as long as you raised the child from a young age, and that's nine for both a boy or a girl, as long as the adoption was before the boy or the girl was nine, so you raise them as a child, hugging, kissing, yichud is totally permitted. And is that what totally we permitted. Go by now? Huh? Is that what we go by? Well, so this is what I want to tell you. Uh, most poskim do not agree with Rev. Oldenburg. I will tell you that I was a, a rabbi for, uh, well, I'm still a rabbi, I guess, but I, I was a shul rabbi for, for 22 years in Silver Spring, Maryland. And the decision I always followed, I always followed that view. And I'll tell you why I followed that view. I followed that view because to deprive an adopted child of the affection of a parent can be very, very painful, especially when there are other children. I knew, I knew a Chabad couple who were following the Rebbe's decision here, and they had, they had two adopted children. And I mean, I remember this. The mother would not, uh, would not, I mean, the child was crying, the mother would not hug the child. Uh, she would make cheshbonos to be out of the house at different times. And I have to say, unfortunately, the child uh, suffered. The child suffered for it. So, so I, I, I personally, again, I'm not telling you what to do. I, I can't tell you what to do. But I, I personally felt that the need for a physical affection uh, it would justify following the view of Waldenberg uh, in a case like this. But you know, it may depend. Uh, there may be families in which the love is so strong that you know, no, you know, we're not, we're not touchy-feely people, right? I mean, some parents don't, don't uh, hug their kids anyway, right? Uh, we're not touchy-feely, but that doesn't mean we don't love you, right? So, so it's a hard dynamic. But it's important that you know that Sitz Eliezer's opinion, that he is very, very mekel on yichud and negia issues regarding adoptive uh, children. The Rebbe was strict on it, and I have to say, and it's not just the Rebbe, the majority of Poskim are in fact strict on this issue, but the Tzitz Eliezer gave us a, a basis to be lenient. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, according to the explanation where it's not about the biology, yeah. would that mean if an 
adopted boy discovered his mother at age 35? Yeah, that's a very, very fascinating question. In other words, the question is, uh, does Rav Waldenberg's decision lead to a strictness in the other direction? Right. Rav Waldenberg emphasizes that it's not biology that's important, it's nurturance. So that's a leniency that allows the adoptive parents to hug and kiss their child. The question is, when the child is 25 and he discovers his natural mother that he had never seen before, is he allowed to hug and kiss her? Uh, so like the Rebbe, Whoa. who looks at biology, you would be allowed to. Right. But like Rav Waldenberg, perhaps it would be us. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Uh, so sometimes you could be lenient. If you're lenient in one direction, you wind up being strict in the other direction. Is the halacha based on biology or is the halacha based on nurturance? Unless you're going to say, I have to look at Revoldenberg again, that perhaps Revoldenberg is saying that either one of them would be good. The biological connection or the nurturance connection. And that would give you a leniency in both both directions. Yeah? Um, is there like, I don't know, like a heather or what if the child, God forbid, is like, if you adopt them, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, the issue is, let's assume that a person adopts a very severely handicapped child. Yeah. So the truth of the matter is, even without the adoption, you have this issue if you're a counselor in a camp. In other words, this issue comes up a lot. Uh, you're a counselor in a camp, uh, you're a therapist, or whatever it would be. So there are a room for severely disabled people who are not going to get sexually aroused. Uh, there, there may be a room for, for all of these things. That's... Uh, uh, people in a coma, you know. What about not so extremely stable, like Well, again, according to the Rebbe, I think the Rebbe, I think the Rebbe would be strict. But again, if, if you follow Rebbe Waldenberg, you, you don't have a problem, you know. Yeah. I think the Rebbe's psak uh, would not make an exception for that automatically. Uh, these are difficult situations. By the way, as a general rule, uh, let's assume a couple wants to adopt. Uh, should they adopt a Jewish child or should they adopt a non-Jewish child? So this is very, very fascinating. There's no question that intrinsically it's a much bigger mitzvah to adopt a Jewish child. There's no question. But Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva where halachically it is less complicated to adopt a non-Jewish child. Why is this? Because of a concept called mamzer. What is a mamzer? Now, mamzer is translated as illegitimate child or bastard child is the older word for it. But that's not a good translation. An illegitimate child in English just means a child who was born out of wedlock, meaning father and mother weren't married. Under halacha, a child who is born out of wedlock has no disability. He's perfectly fine, no problem. I mean, people shouldn't live out of wedlock, but that does not affect the child. Mamzer is a child who is born from adultery or incest. So if a Jewish married woman, a, Jew, a Jewish woman who's married to a Jewish man, commits adultery, the child that is born is Jewish because she's Jewish. Right? The, the child is Jewish. But unfortunately, he has a very tragic status called Mamzer. And as a Mamzer, he is not allowed to marry other Jewish people except for other mamzers, or he could marry a converted uh, person. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, the status continues to the next generation. 
the next generation is mamzer, 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 mamzer. Now, can Congress be mamzers? Uh, a con oh, no, no. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Congress cannot be a mamzer. I'll, I'll get to that. So, whenever you have a, a child that you adopt, or a child you find in the street, let's say, you don't know if the child is a mamzer. Maybe the child was born from either adultery or incest. If God forbid, right? So, so as a matter of halacha, you would have to be strict, and this child could not marry anyone unless you had a record who his parents were. But Rav Moshe says, if you adopt a non-Jewish child, even if the non-Jewish child was a product of adultery or incest, once they are converted, and I'll discuss how they're converted, that erases everything, and therefore, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mamjers are very hard. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, and it goes on forever and ever, really. It goes on forever and ever. Uh, it's very hard to understand. There's even a medrash that says that in Olam Haba, in the world to come, God takes all the children who died as mamzers and he learns Torah with them privately. In other words, everyone else learns Torah from this rabbi and that rabbi, and God takes the mamzer as his own child. Uh, I think the lesson of mamzer is this. The lesson of mamzer is to understand that consensual sin is not a victimless crime. By that I mean the following. People often say, oh, I know it's wrong to murder, I know it's wrong to steal because I'm hurting somebody. But if I want to have an affair, if I want to have fun, if I want to enjoy life with another person, I'm not hurting anybody. Why shouldn't I be able to do it? And Mamzer is a tragic reminder that sins have consequences beyond the sinner. Sins create real damage. I mean, the same way that if you were to have AIDS and you would have relations, you know, the child would have AIDS or may have AIDS, and it wouldn't be the child's fault. But it's a consequence of an action. So sins have those consequences too. Every sin has a consequence. Yeah. That's true. Every sin does have a consequence, and this is the consequence of this one. I mean, Mamzer reminds a person that, hey, you think you're just having a good time. You're doing something that can affect your children to the end of eternity, the end of time, and therefore be very, very careful. Now, now I want to say one thing. In truth, we have a lot of procedural steps that makes it very hard for a person to be a Mamzer. For example, if a woman has an affair and she gets pregnant and has a child, we will still assume it's from her husband. Even though we know she had an affair, we will assume the pregnancy is from her husband. And many opinions say, even if there's a DNA test that rules out the husband, we don't rely on the DNA. So in order to make somebody a mamzer, she would have to have an affair and her husband would have to be in China or in jail or something. Meaning, as long as she is still living with her husband, even if she has an affair, it is almost impossible to make the child a mamzer. So we bend over backwards not to make a child a mamzer. But sometimes there will be cases where a child will be a, will be a mamzer. So the problem with a Jewish adoption is that if you don't know who the parents are, if it's a, a closed adoption, the child might have the status of a mamzer. Now listen, even if he's a mamzer, there's, no, there's still a mitzvah to take care of him. <laughs> that doesn't take away the mitzvah. 
but it'll be complicated in terms of finding him a marriage partner. So Rav Moshe says that a non-Jewish child is halachically easier to take care of because the conversion erases the status of mamzer. Now, how do you convert an adopted child? Let's go over that. Let's assume I adopt a baby from birth. I adopt a baby, you know, just born, a week old, 30 days old. How do you convert a baby? Or can you convert a baby? So the halacha is yes. You can convert even children. And if it's a boy, so the boy needs a bris. Of course, every boy needs a bris, but this is a conversion bris to make him Jewish. And the boy needs to go to the mikvah. Now, this is interesting. How do you take a six-month-old baby or a three-month-old baby to the mikvah? You don't throw him in because he'll sit. So basically, the way it works is, all, by the way, all of this is done in front of three rabbis. This is a based in. Three rabbis see the circumcision. Three rabbis see the immersion in a mikvah. And the way it works is that the father, usually, will go into the mikvah. He'll put on a bathing suit or whatever it would be. He'll hold the baby over his arms. And he will lower his arms so the baby is momentarily underwater and then lifts up his arms. Now, it's very important that the baby be face down. Face down, not face up. In other words, you drape him over your arm, face down. Reason? Because babies have a swimming reflex. When their nose hits the water, they hold their breath. And they even do the dog paddle. They do. Because they're used to it. They just came out of the womb, right? And that's why they lose it at around six months. It's actually better to take the baby to the mikvah before six months than after six months. After six months, he loses the swimming reflex and he might swallow water. Again, it's not a tragedy, but you know, it'll be uncomfortable for him. But within six months, he loves it. It reminds him of the womb. He, I say he or she, same thing. Face hits the water. He, does, he or she does the dog paddle. And then, generally speaking, the baby will start crying when you take him out of the water. But that's not because the water was uncomfortable. It's because of the change in temperature. The water was nice and warm. And now it's cold, so the baby cries because of the cold. So it's absolutely no problem to take a baby to the mikvah before six months. It's a little more problem after six months because uh, he'll, he may swallow some water. But that's why it has to be face first, because it's only when the nose hits the water that uh, the baby holds his breath and the like. So that's step one is bris for a boy. Step two is mikvah which for a girl would be step one. But then there's a step three, which is very, very, very important. Step three is acceptance of the commandments. Now, when you have an adult who's converting, that means that the adult declares in front of the basin that he will observe, he or she will observe the commandments of the Torah. If, for example, if an adult were to say, oh, I'm not going to keep Shabbos, we would not do an orthodox conversion. Now, the question is, how do you do that for a baby? So the answer is the parents. The adoptive parents declare in front of the basin that they will raise the child in accordance with halacha. Now, this is a little tricky. 
Because what if the parents are not orthodox? This happens a lot. You have non-orthodox parents. They're Jewish. They're Jewish parents, non-orthodox parents. They adopt a child, and they want to convert the child in a way that halacha will accept. So how does this work? So you're going to have different, different opinions. Some bastards will not perform an orthodox conversion on a child unless the child is going to be raised in an orthodox home. That's just their policy. We will not convert a child orthodox, halakhically, unless the child is going to be raised orthodox. Other, but they didn't, are a little more lenient. They will say, as long as the home is kosher, as long as only kosher food is served, including separation of meat and milk, and as long as the child will be sent, when he's of school age, to an orthodox school, so he will learn about the halacha, and as long as the parents will not try to stop the child from becoming more religious, they will allow the conversion even if the parents are not personally observant. So there are mamish different, different views here regarding uh, the acceptance of a child for conversion. Now, once the child is converted, so the three steps are, for a boy, there are three steps. For a girl, there are two steps. For a boy, the three steps are mila, that's bris, tevila, immersion in mikvah, and the third step is kabbalat mitzvot, accepting of the commandments, and then I mentioned two different standards here. Must it be totally halacha, or is it enough for the parents to say kosher food plus Jewish education? Once those three, and for girls, you have the two steps, uh, immersion in the mikvah and kabbalat mitzvot. Once that is done, the adopted child is Jewish. Not a Kohen or a Levi, but Jewish. But there's one big, big difference, a tremendous difference between conversion of a minor and conversion of an adult. When you convert as an adult, which means a boy is 13 or a girl is 12, that's irrevocable. You can't change your mind. Once you're Jewish, you're stuck, although that's not the way to say it. Judaism does not recognize the possibility of converting to another religion. If you were born a Jew, even if you now say you practice Christianity, you are still a Jew. But even by a convert, that's true. If you were a Christian, you converted to Judaism, and now you go back to Christianity, God forbid, you are still a Jew. So one way, entrance. You can enter, and you can't get out. Again, I don't mean to make it sound negative or anything. However, when you were converted as a minor, there's a difference. Because since the minor never really agreed to be a Jew, when, when the minor becomes 12 in the case of a girl, or 13 in the case of a boy. Does he have to re-accept his? No, no, so they have the right to renounce and say, I don't want to be Jewish. Now, there's a common mistake people make. People will sometimes tell you, you have to re-accept your Judaism when you become bar bas mitzvah. That's not true. You don't have to re-accept. 
you have the right to get out of it within a re what's called a reasonable time. I'll talk about that. If you fail to reject, you automatically accept. Now, you do not have to have a ceremony of re-accepting. You certainly do not have to go to the mikvah again. For some reason, people sometimes say that. Not true. But you have the right to reject, but if you practice Judaism, even for a short time, like you kept the Shabbos after your bar mitzvah, you lose the right to reject. So this is very unique. This is the only circumstance where you can reject a conversion is when it was done when you were a minor. No, no, no. Well, 18 is... No. No, that's this not, this not MS. Uh, 18 is not a relevant age in halacha. I mean, 18 is the age of majority under secular law, right? But under halacha, you're, you're, you're an adult, a girl at 12, and a boy at, uh, at 13, okay? Now, I, I actually had a kid. Now, it's very rare. I mean, listen, I, I know many parents with adopted uh, children, uh, including me, uh, and uh, it's very, very rare that a child is going to say when he's 13, I don't want to be Jewish anymore. Uh, but I know one case where it did happen. Uh, uh, this was a, uh, a Russian couple. Uh, and by the way, it doesn't only, it's not only in the case of adoption. It could also be when a whole, it could even be with a biological child. Let's assume you have a family of non-Jews who convert. You have a husband and a wife. They're not Jewish. They have children. They convert as adults, and their children are converted as, as, as uh, minors. So there, too, they could renounce, the kids could renounce their conversion, even if they're a biological child. So I think this was actually the case uh, that, I, that, uh, that I was involved in, in which um, a Jewish guy married a non-Jewish woman who didn't convert, had a son who was therefore a guy, a non-Jew, mother then converted to Judaism, and had her son converted as a minor. It's pretty common that that happens. So when the kid was 13, he said he didn't want to be Jewish anymore. And I remember the father didn't know these halachas. It didn't make sense to him. He said, called up and said, what type of business is it? He doesn't want to be Jewish. He was taken to the mikvah. And the kid had a whole spiritual reason. His reason was that Jews have many more commandments than non-Jews. And it's easier to mess up and make mistakes. So I'd rather be a non-Jew and keep the seven Noahide laws and get Olam Haba. Remember, a righteous non-Jew gets the world to come instead of being a Jew and mess up on Shabbos and Kashras and everything else. So the father thought his son was crazy. But his son renounced his conversion. His son became a goy. Now, there's a happy ending. When the son was 20, 20, he decided to become a Jew on his own. And he converted to Judaism. In other words, after you renounce as a kid, you can then do it on your own as an adult. Yeah, but now his parents are understanding. That's correct. Even though they're both Jewish. That, that's correct. Halakhically, that, that's correct. Uh, and I think he's in. Uh, I think he's in Kolel. He's like he moved to Israel, and he's like very, very from. But but he needed to do it on his own. He didn't want to be Jewish because his parents made him Jewish. He wanted to be Jewish because he wanted to be Jewish. So he renounced his conversion. For a few years, he was a guy, and then he became a Jew on his own. Now, keep in mind, once he becomes a Jew on his own, he cannot change his mind on that. The conversion you do as an adult 
is a final conversion, you can never change your mind in that. Can you explain what Bhakti was saying that then his parents weren't his parents? Okay, this is a this is a tricky thing, and uh, it sounds it sounds much worse than it is. Uh, that that, that th that's the first thing I have to tell you, and that is there is a principle by all conversion that when one converts to Judaism, they are treated like a newly created person, which erases all prior relationships. That actually means, under the strict halacha, if a mother and a son convert, the mother could marry the son, because they're no longer treated as mother and son, father and daughter, brother and sister. They're not related. They're like people who are not related to each other. Now, it's very important to understand that that is not referring to emotional bonding, that is not referring to love, that is not referring to caring. Of course, even after a person converts, they love their parents, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, you know, whether the parents converted or not, uh, they should love their siblings, etc. cetera. Uh, so we're not talking about emotional distancing and we're not talking about lack of love. No, but we're talking about legal, legal relationships. For example, inheritance, marriage, incestuous laws, right? In other words, there are a lot of legal things that arise from being related. If I'm related to a person, I inherit them. If I'm not related, I don't inherit them. If I'm related to them, I might not be able to marry them. If I'm not related, I am able to marry them. So with regard to legal questions such as such as marriage and inheritance, we are not considered related. But with respect to what you might call non-legal emotional issues, we're certainly related. Okay, that's why I say it, it shouldn't sound as bad, uh, it shouldn't be as bad as it may sound, because we're not, we're not dealing with the human relationship, we're dealing with some legal relationships. Now again, the fact that if I and my father convert, I don't inherit from my father, doesn't mean I get nothing, he just has to make a will, that's all, meaning the inheritance is not automatic, so he provides me in a will, which he should do anyway, right? So it doesn't stop anything from happening, but it does require that certain steps be taken that would otherwise not be taken. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. Um, so you were saying the whole, thir like, they can convert out or they, whatever, 1213. Yeah. So is that like, oh, a, a boy on his 13th birthday, he decide, or does it have to be done before he turns 13? No, in other words, he, he is given a, a short period of time on his, from his 13th birthday onward. Oh, so once he's 13? Yeah, yeah. And like, how long is that time? It depends on the so, so it's very, very tricky. But once he's done mitzvahs, that, that's the, really it has to be basically on the same day because once he puts on tefillin, then he's, he's lost, he's stuck. Okay. So it has to be before he did any mitzvah. By the way, Rav Moshe Feinstein has a very important uh, uh, additional note here. Let me just point this out. Rav Moshe Feinstein says that the rule that if he didn't renounce by 13, he's stuck. I hate to say stuck. Only applies if he knew he was born non-Jewish and he knew he had the right to renounce. If he did not discover he was adopted until he was 45, or he didn't know he could renounce until he was 45, on his 45th birthday, he could renounce. In other words, whenever, whenever he finds out, which actually is kind of crazy, yeah. especially if it's a woman, because she, she might have children and grandchildren, oh, yeah. and they retroactively turn out to be Goyim, because if she renounces her conversion, then she was a non-Jew all the way back. 
what if they knew they were adopted but didn't know that their birth parents weren't Jew? Like they didn't know that part. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so it has to be everything. They they have to know. They have to know that their birth mother was not Jewish. I know a lot of people from like my college who yep. like were adopted and like they don't know. They, they know they know that Judaism goes through the mother even, let's say, but they have no idea, like, oh my doctor, my mom is Jewish, like I'm Jewish. A lot of people make this mistake, and this is a very important mistake, very important to correct. The fact that your adoptive mother is Jewish does not make you Jewish unless you underwent a conversion yeah. ceremony. Adoption alone does not confer Adoption is a secular proceeding. Adoption is a proceeding in court. Adoption is not a religious uh, proceeding at all. Uh, there is conversion. That's a religious proceeding. Did you want to say? I, I just asked you to clarify because I kind of lost Yeah, yeah which, which, which thing? Which thing? Uh, I... About Jamie's question. Uh, which one? Which, which, what, 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 what was the question? When I said, like. Uh, no, no, I was just saying. Did I clarify? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Remember, adop remember, adoption is a legal procedure in a court. It is not a religious ritual. And in order to make somebody Jewish, if they were not born Jewish, whether it's a child or an adult, there has to be a conversion. Uh, okay? But there's probably so many cases. Well, you're right. You're, you're right. You're like, right. You're I, I right. knew, like, there's this class that you can have to take. Yeah. Like, they're not, they have to. There's this class you can take relating science, you know, science all thing. Do to what? The, the JLI class. Yes, 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 yes. Your mom has to be Jewish, right? And I yep. knew a girl who took it. And I, she was like, oh yeah, my mom's Jewish. And I was like, oh yeah, cool, your mom's Jewish. She looked like her mom, I had no idea. And then like later we found out she was adopted. Yeah, but, but, but do you know she didn't have a conversion? She I didn't mean... have a conversion. So I'm saying like, oh, okay, she was a Jewish guy, and my rabbi was so happy because he's uh, like, oh, Jew isn't Jew. Like, well, then, uh... it's like, you know, this is an enormous problem. First of all, you have to understand there's an enormous problem in the Jewish people today. Uh, one of them is, is adoption, which is numerically not so great, not so large. Yeah. But there are a lot of other problems, too. For example, the reform movement uh, follows uh, patrilineal descent, meaning they will allow a person to be declared Jewish if their father is Jewish, even if their mother is not Jewish. Yeah. So there are a lot of kids who, who say they're Jewish, where halacha they would not be Jewish. Or what about conversions? Uh, the reform movement and the conservative movement do a lot of conversions. And the conversions don't require the full acceptance of the commandments. So in the eyes of halacha, the Jew is not Jewish. So it used to be in the olden days, olden days meaning 30 years ago, if somebody said they were Jewish, you could assume they were Jewish. Today, you know, you really don't know. Huh? Uh, well, I'm just, I just picked a number. I mean, I, I mean when I was I younger, uh, they didn't have so many complications. Uh, but now, somebody says they're Jewish. Well, is their mother Jewish? Uh, was there a reform or conservative conversion? Uh, was there an adoption? Right? That's another, yeah. you know, these are all issues. So it's not so clear. And names mean nothing. The fact that somebody is a Jewish name, uh, Badafka. That means yeah. doesn't mean they're Jewish because their mother, <laughs> I mean their mother, right? The, the, the family name will tend to be the father's name, and that doesn't tell you what the mother is, right? So there's a lot of problems here. Um, it's not so simple anymore that uh, you know, it's 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 not so easy you to marry. You're right. That would make it easier. After three generations, you're just Jewish, right? Huh? Well, we don't, we, don't, we don't try to investigate that much, meaning we don't try to dig, 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 because unfortunately, whenever you dig for problems, you always find them. Uh, but but there, are, there are real issues that are very apparent. Yeah, I'm sorry. Which one? It's okay. Yeah. Um, what if, so when someone converts, they can't, like, let's say, like, touch their father anymore? Well, well, 
No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. So this is where you have an interesting issue. We discussed a while ago about adoption, that uh, do I look at biology or do I look at nurturance? Now, what about conversion? Not adoption, conversion. A father and a daughter convert. Can the father hug the daughter, assuming she's old enough that it would be us or normally? So there we are, Mekel, because there, even though they're technically unrelated, there is both a biological connection and a nurturance connection. So even though your point is a good point, but Lamaisa we're Mekel on it. Uh, so uh, we do permit hugging and kissing of uh, converted siblings, converted parents, parents and children, and the like. But of course, keep in mind, if a uh, Jewish man uh, is married to a non-Jewish woman and the non-Jewish woman converts, they have to get remarried. That, they, that's, of course, that, that's understood. And if both of them were non-Jewish, huh? Under Jewish law. Under Jewish law. Yeah, they need a Kedushin, they need Chuppah. And the same thing if both of them were not Jewish and they converted, they have to be remarried under the Chuppah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what happens if you were talking about how like, if a family converts, then like the, if the family converts together, then halakhically are those parents their parents? No, halakhically, again, again, halakhically they're not related to each other. Uh, none of them are. But as even I said, they convert together? that's correct, even they convert together. Because even if the kid is like one year old? That's correct. Uh, all, all conversion severs all connections. But any I, kids they have after are their kids? I didn't hear you. Any kids, so like mom no, no, no. converts so the, and so they have the, another kid, that's their kid. That's their kid, that, that's correct. But is that kid. So can that kid marry the siblings? Uh, well, under Torah, under Torah law, yes. Rabbinically, those things yeah. are forbidden because yeah. it looks like incest. But Doraisa, 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 the siblings born later could marry these siblings who converted. That, that, that is correct. Yeah. I have one more question, sorry. Yeah. Um, so what if someone converts and they, they do uh, a proper conversion? And then, you know, next year they're like, ah, I don't want to be so Jewish, or I don't, not even like, they still want to be Jewish, they're just not from anymore. Okay. They're still Jewish, right? Uh, okay, yes. And you're talking about they converted what age? As adults? As adults, yeah. Okay, so this is very important. This is very, very important. It's very important that if I converted as an adult and then I stopped keeping mitzvahs, I'm still Jewish. I am like any other Jew yes. who sadly stopped keeping the Torah, I'm still Jewish. In fact, even if I convert to Christianity, I'm still Jewish. You can never take. You cannot lose the status of being Jewish. Right? This is the famous statement in the Talmud: Yisrael afal pi shechata. A Yisrael, even if he sins, Yisrael who is a Jew. No such thing. Right? We don't let you out. You are a Jew, no matter what. However, in the case of a kid who was converted before bar mitzvah, yeah. you, he could renounce it if he does it if he does it uh, right uh, right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important that you cannot invalidate a conversion because somebody stops being orthodox or stops keeping the Torah for whatever reason. He's like any Jew. A Jew stops keeping the Torah. That's sad. You know, we're not happy about it. We want to help him, but that doesn't mean he's not Jewish. Uh, he is. He is certainly. Going to be going to be Jewish, okay? Does everyone understand the, the the general idea of the conversion of the minors? Now, let me just mention. Uh, yeah. Sorry, just yeah. one more related no, to sorry, that. Yeah. Um, if if someone converts, you know how when you convert, you have to be hundred percent. I want to be a Jew, right? If you're an adult, yeah. Yeah. What if you go into it with a little bit of 
I want to be Jewish okay. right now, but I'm not 100%. Okay, so now, let, so now let's differentiate. Yeah, I was going to address that. Let, let's differentiate a few situations. Situation one was, when I became Jewish, I was 100% committed. Yeah. But six months later, I've lost my enthusiasm. In that case, you are still 100% Jewish. The fact that you lost your enthusiasm later just means like any Jew who lost their enthusiasm, you're still Jewish. Mm -hmm. Now, case number two is different. What if at the time I became Jewish, or I went to the mikvah, I was thinking to myself, I really don't know if I want this, or maybe even the other way around. Maybe you were even deceptive. Yeah. You, you were thinking, I'm not going to keep Shabbos, or I'm not going to yeah. keep... You know. I mean, I love bacon, and I love bacon too much. Uh, so there, that, that is... Uh, now, of course, how, does it, how, how do we know that? But if we knew, if we know that at the time of the conversion, your thoughts were not sincere, the conversion wasn't valid to begin with, and you remain a non-Jew. Now, the big question is, we can't read minds. And define sincere, like... Oh, I want to keep Sneas, but that means, like, you know what I mean? There's levels of everything. So it all depends. If, 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 the right con if the concept is, if the concept is, initially this might be a little hard for me, so I'm, but I hope to grow into it, I think that would be a valid conversion. If, however, you definitively say, yeah, I'm not going to do that one, then you'd have a big problem. Now, it may be that for... Some types of things, like you know, a married woman said, "I don't want to cover my hair." Maybe that wouldn't invalidate. But if it's something big like Shabbos or Kashrus or family purity, yeah. the conversion would be invalid. So here is the big problem that Bastins have. Sometimes they look at the fact that after the conversion, the person stopped keeping the Torah as evidence that they weren't sincere to begin with, and then they will invalidate the conversion. In other words, this is a very hard question. When do I say you changed your mind? And when do I say it's obvious this was a fake to begin with? It's hard to make yeah, if it's a fake to begin with, the conversion will be invalid. If it's a change of mind, right? So obviously time is a major factor. If somebody was Shomer Shabbos for five years, I'll give you a simple case, and then they stopped being Shomer Shabbos, it's logical that they were sincere at the time. It almost reminds me of the, the laws like when you apply for a green card in America. Yeah. The amount of, like, you can get married, you don't have to have your men, and then you get divorced, how right. like, who keeps the citizenship. That's right, that's right. That, it's similar. It's because conversion in some ways is like citizenship. It's, it's very, very similar. Citizenship in Klal Yisrael. So, I'll give you two examples. I, if I kept Shabbos for five years and then became a Mechal Shabbos, I probably was sincere. If, on the other hand, I convert Friday morning and the first Friday night I go to a Trafe restaurant and drive my car, hmm, it's not likely that you totally changed between Friday morning and Friday night. Probably what happened was you didn't mean it to begin with. So those are obvious cases, right? So in the case of the Friday night, we would invalidate the conversion. In the case of the five years, we wouldn't invalidate the conversion. But then you've got all the cases in between, six months later, three months later, you know. Uh, so that's a very tough situation. But I do want to point out that the Jerusalem Post and the Israeli media always misreport this. They will commonly say that rabbinic courts in Israel invalidate conversions when the converts stopped keeping the Torah. That's not true. It's only when the assumption was 
the conversion was not sincere. You do not lose your conversion because you stopped keeping the Torah. Uh, and uh, the newspaper articles are totally uh, incorrect about that. Yeah? Would it be considered a legitimate conversion if like, you weren't, say you were dressing modestly, but you weren't at like full strict sneeze, and you were like, well, I want to do that, but you're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. But you have the intention. Yeah, so, so this is a very important uh, distinction. Uh, we understand that a person cannot always embrace every detail of observance all at once. And the same way we would deal with a Jew who wants to become more observant, that you take things a little bit at a time. So for a convert, there could be the same type of understanding, that it takes time. The main thing that we look for is commitment, not necessarily actual observance, but you know, I'm, I'm moving in this direction. This is where I want to go. I'm not rejecting anything, as opposed to a rejection where I say no. Now, uh, the, the, way, the way this is expressed in halacha is, what is required is kabbalas mitzvos, not shemiras mitzvos. Now, the words here are very significant. Kabbalas mitzvos is I accept them as my path in life. Shemiras mitzvos is actual observance. We don't require actual observance. We require commitment to the process of observance. Now, I'll give you an opposite case. What if you have a person who actually wants to keep the mitzvos 100% but doesn't believe in the theology of the Torah? In other words, in the case... I'll give you a case. I'll, I'll give you an example. In your case... The person accepts the Torah, but is not yet ready to follow everything, so we give them time. Mm -hmm. But I'll give you a case of somebody who was going to keep the halacha 100% but didn't believe in it. Now, what type of case is that? Here was the case of a man who married a Japanese woman. And the Japanese woman was a good wife, so she, and he was becoming more religious. It was through Chabad. And as he was becoming more religious, as a you know, Japanese wife, as a very obedient wife, she would do everything for him. She would only cook kosher. She, would, she kept the laws of Nida, you know, 12 days of separation a month. But she didn't believe that God gave the Torah because, you know, whatever, she didn't have all those beliefs. She was doing it to make her husband happy. So I was telling her, I mean, I told her, listen, you're keeping everything anyway. Become Jewish. You're keeping everything. And then she told me that she didn't believe in all of these things. So this is an interesting reverse question where somebody is keeping the mitzvahs but is not accepting them as God's Torah. Is that a valid conversion? All right, so there's some problem. I mean, Baruch Hashem, eventually uh, she came to a belief as well, and she converted and has a fine Jewish, Jewish home. But that's a rare situation, meaning sometimes you'll have the person who accepts but doesn't observe, and rarely you'll have the person who observes but doesn't accept it as the word of, as the word of, of Hashem, okay? All right, so maybe we'll stop here. Uh, let you off a little early and uh, get whatever you need. And Bezrat Hashem, we hope that the seger will not uh, last too long. <laughs>